0: Well, this morning, as we do look into Daniel's prophecy, we're going to note uh, really three different visions, the the ram, the goat, and then toward the end of the chapter, something called the man of intrigue. And and these three different visions in this book represent definitely a historical reality, but for us, they communicate also something deeper, and that's this, how to get God's vision for tough times. There were tough times awaiting God's people in Israel, the nation of Babylon where Daniel was serving, and and these visions served as a great reminder of hope that God's in control of the tough times and when we get his vision for life, we can rise above them with God's power and help. Now as we look today at this study, the first thing we're going to note is, is on your outline the facts of God's vision. We're going to talk about some factual elements for a moment, and then we're going to look at some truths that we can apply to our life. On your outline, when it says the facts of God's vision, the first one, A, under number one, is simply this. The ram likely refers to the Medo-Persian Empire. Let me read the first three verses to get a sense of what's going on here. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me in my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam in the vision I was beside Ulai Canal now you can see there that it's not necessary that he went to Susa which is modern-day Iran hundreds of miles from where he was in modern-day Iraq but in the vision he's transported there and then it says in verse 3 I looked up and I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched as the ram. He charged toward the west, and the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from could, could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and became great. That really gives some of the. Meaning of what the Medo-Persian Empire it's been prophesied before in chapter 2. We also looked at it in chapter 7 this time it's represented by a Ram now interesting thing about this prophecy is that just like last week We noted is that Daniel asked for God's help in understanding it And so he sends for the first time in the book of Daniel We'll see him two other times the nativity angel that we know as Gabriel Look in verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So it's as though the Lord dispatches his chief, one of his favorite angels, Gabriel, and explains to Daniel this vision. It says, as I came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end." While he was speaking to me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me up to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the visions concern the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Mede and Persia. Now, Some have questioned, when it says the time of the end, is it a a reference to the end of the world or the end of the Babylonian civilization? It could have one of those dual meanings, but it seems like the immediate context, he's letting them know once again that your rule in Babylon will come to an end, and then the the Medo-Persian Empire, with with all its power, will come into play. Now, the next fact that we see of this vision begins... In verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram, as I had seen standing beside the canal, and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and its place, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. We might once again ask ourselves, what on earth does this prophecy mean? Fortunately, Gabriel not only helped out Daniel, but it helps out helps out us as readers, because look at verse twenty one and twenty two. It says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. That's a a fascinating look. Uh, Basically, it describes what happens 200 years after this prophecy, specifically and precisely to the nation of Greece. That's B under number one. The goat likely refers to Greece. And it is... A, an extremely powerful picture of what happens the 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 horn that comes out is a reference to alexander the great and his kingdom was divided into four different kingdoms and one of the things that we note historically about alexander is though he was powerful he died early he died young and you know when paul uses the term In Romans chapter 8 that in Christ we are more than conquerors the reason he used the term more than conquerors is because conquerors had a ancient curse upon them it took all the energy to conquer a nation and oftentimes when you conquered a nation you ended up dying because of the exhaustion you put yourself under and it's almost the same way in our own spiritual life sometimes in our own strength we try to beat something and we almost kill ourselves trying to break a bad habit, so to speak, in our own flesh. But in Christ, we're more than conquerors. We don't just exhaust ourselves trying to beat it ourselves, but Christ is living his life through us so that we can say no to sin and keep living because conquerors often hurt themselves, as we see in Alexander. Well, there's another vision we have in beginning in verse 9, and it says this, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land, which is a reference to Palestine. It grew until it reached the host of heaven, and it threw some of its starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as the great prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Now, in verses 9 through 11, it seems to be describing a historical character. And in verses 20, in 23 through 25, which we'll look at in more detail in a moment, there's this third vision, and it says this, In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have come, become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, the word intrigue meaning that which captivates and draws will arise so he's stern faced he's angry and he's intriguing he's captivating people want to see him who is this charismatic leader he'll become very strong but not by his own power he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed and whenever he does he will destroy the mighty men and the holy people now interesting thing there unlike the first two visions it doesn't spell out who it is and so you're left with a question, is this relate to the end times or does this relate to history? If you take it in context with the other two, it seems to relate to what is history for us, but what was future for Daniel. And so C, under number one, is that the stern man of intrigue likely refers to a historical type of Antichrist. If you look, at as the four kingdoms divided in Greece, one, ro- one leader that had a particular hatred for God's chosen people, for the Jews, in the 2nd century B.C. by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, if you were to Google his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, if, you could ever, if we could ever learn how to spell that name, it, you, would, you would read the great horrors that he committed against the Jews. And, and likely, it's a perfect reference to him uh, that Daniel prophesied because in 168 uh, B.C., he went into the holy temple of Jerusalem and he took a, he, he, he didn't take a goat, he took a pig and you, if you know about Jewish uh, law, of course, the, uh, an unclean animal is the pig and he took a pig and he sacrificed a pig on the offering where you were to sacrifice a lamb uh, in the foreshadowing of Christ. And He took an unclean animal and slid it and made an awful Mess and it horrified the people of God. And then he made the Jewish religion illegal. Anyone that had a copy of the Torah or anyone that uh, practiced Jewish festivals was killed. And it, it sent God's people running to the mountains or being murdered or taken, women and children were taken as slaves. It was an awful time of devastation that we read historically. And and so some feel that that Daniel's talking about two different visions, Antiochus Epiphanes and maybe 9 through 11, and then the actual Antichrist that we talked about last week in 23 and 24, but it's likely a reference to Antiochus in both of them, showing him to be what the Antichrist is like. He was powerful. He was dangerous. He stamped out the worship of God. So that those are the three facts of what the visions refer to. The point is for us, you didn't wake out of bed this morning going, I'd like some more data about God. I'd like some more information about God. All of us, as we seek to walk with Christ, we want to know how to live out our faith. So what truths can we have for our daily life to help us have God's vision for tough times? There's Five of them I want to give you this morning, the first one, number two, the truth of God's vision, first of all, A, is that our suffering is monitored by God. Now we always know God's watching out for us. I mean, the other day, Susie and I were taking a walk, and there's a little pond in front of our house, um, a, a little bit down the hill, and we were walking around that hill and just talking, it was a bright, sunny day, and all of a sudden... I heard what I've heard several times since I've lived in Florida the last seven years. Right, bef- right up ahead before us, you hear this <coughs> It was as though a ton of bricks hit the water. But as you look up a little more, you could see a little fin coming out, of, a, a little tail coming out of the water, and it was swimming away from us. Well, Susan and I saw that it was a gator, and we quickly felt led of the Lord to turn around and go the other way. And as we're going around the other way, we had to return back because our hearts beat out of our chest, and we had to go back and get them. And as we, as we, watched, that, uh, as we watched that gator sort of uh, swim away from us, she let me know that was the last time we were going to hold hands around that lake. Um, and, and you know, we, you, we walk away going, you know, God was watching out for us, and some of you who have been here all your life are going, well, it's no big deal, Pastor Cliff, suck it up and tough it up, but... You, The truth is, God does more than just watch out for us. The truth is, as we see from this prophet today, is that God is actually monitoring our suffering. Now, what what I mean by that is, look at what happens in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the division to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and the host that will be trampled underfoot. This is in the middle of the Antiochus Epiphanes reign. And God's people want to know, how long is this going on? Do we have to suffer under this kind of barbaric treatment forever? In verse 14, he said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. I mean, there was, it was completely defiled, the sanctuary where they worshipped. And they were not allowed, it was closed down, they weren't allowed to worship in there anyway. And they asked the question, how long? Some of you have asked the Lord that question. How long must I stay in this physical condition? How long do I have to put up with the injustice of this world? How long will I have this conflict at home, this, at work? How long will I stay in this awful hump I can't seem to overcome in my personal life and my finances? How long, O oh Lord? And isn't it interesting that God gave them a specific answer? 2,300 evenings. When you put that into the lunar calendar... Uh, it, it likely refers to a period of six years. Some of it dated differently and cut that time in half um, and, and say it relates to about three years. But either interpretation you take, uh, if, you, if you go to 171 B.C., which is when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, deposed the high priest, six years later is when the Maccabean Revolt that uh, is where the festival of lights or hanukkah came from when out in the countryside um, judas judas maccabean uh led a revolt and and of insurgents of people that were going to overcome and tackle greece and they were successful and re-purified and consecrated the temple and it took that long to get it together so it was about six years now what's the principle from us is that is it mean this If we want to ask God how long he's going to come back with a date, many of you have asked that question to the Lord, and he's not given you an answer of length. In this case, he gave them a specific answer of length. But in our case, what we can know is that God is monitoring it. And we know in Scripture that he will not give us more than we can handle, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And it's our job to believe that. That he won't give us more that we can bear, but he'll be with us and he'll be faithful and he will strengthen us. And yes, we wish there was a time and we don't know why prophetically God gave them the amount of days and doesn't always give us. But we know that he is sovereignly monitoring our situation and won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Now this next particular principle is one that's seen so often in the book of Daniel, so often in the word of God is this, that be, God can be trusted to work for our good. When you look at the historical example of what, why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah and the good, the unity and the unifying and the strengthening and the seriousness of the worship that took place after the devastation of Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a powerful reminder that God took something awful and made something good about it. That's why Paul, when he spoke the immortal words of Romans eight twenty eight, with force he says, "And we know." That word means experientially we know in the depths of who we are that God causes all things to work together for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. I was reading a story about. A shepherd in Scotland that had a hard time convincing his sheep. Uh, of course, that was a goat, but he, it, it almost, they look so much like the, the, the little sheep you see on a hillside when you're in a the sheep country. And the, this shepherd was talking about when the sheep would get infected, how he had to plunge them into some antiseptic, a big bath of antiseptic that the sheep hated. And they would cry and fuss and throw fits, but he would push them under and would take the staff and make sure that their ears especially got treated and, and that they would just scream and, and fight and fuss. And his shepherd, who cared so much for the sheep, wished he could pick them up and tell them, I'm doing this for your good so that you will stay alive. But they couldn't see it. And sometimes we have to, well, we, we can't really see the hand of God at work because we're so. Much in pain and focus on our grief. And we have to come to the place where we're convinced of his character. Lord, I don't understand what is going on, but I know that you are good. You can be trusted to work this together for my good. Something we also note from a general look at Daniel chapter 8. It teaches us a powerful principle about the authority of scripture. And that's C under number 2. Is that God's Word is reliable. Have you ever had anyone try to say, why do you read that outdated book? Uh, By the way, this book is getting less and less believed by people in our culture. For us to stake our life on this, for us to believe the moral principles of this, we are going to look more and more outdated. But we have to keep saying, this is what I believe, this is what has proven to be true in my life. And we must stand on his truth, and someone might say, well, Why do you believe that this book is inspired? One of the greatest proofs that we have for the inspiration and therefore the authority of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. And liberal scholars can't stand that the book of Daniel foresaw 200 years down to the great details of Greece and, and some 400 years down on the details of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so you know what their answer is? Well, obviously, Daniel must have been written later. It was written maybe in the first century B.C., so all these things could come to pass, and it made Daniel look like he knew what he was talking about. That's basically saying we lost the battle, and therefore we're changing the rules. Uh, There's much great defense for putting Daniel the date of Daniel, right after the time that these events occurred and these prophecies actually happened. And so there is a fulfilled prophecy that backs up Scripture. We see it not only in the prophets, we see it especially in the life of Christ, who many uh, prophecies about his life were gloriously fulfilled. They were prophesied of how he would die, of where he would be born, of what his name would be, that he'd be born of a virgin, hundreds of years before his actual birth. I was reading... uh, about probability uh, recently, and how the probability of prophecies being fulfilled is great proof of the authority of inspiration. And one said, Imagine eight prophecies being fulfilled about one person, and there are many about Christ. <clears throat> the, the likelihood of those being fulfilled is one to a to, uh, hundred to the power of 17. So, one with 17 zeros falling after it. It's in the quadrillions, the likelihood of, of eight prophecies being fulfilled. It, it's an amazing odds that God fulfilled. It said, if you take all of that number and you stack silver dollars two feet high, they would fill the state of Texas. <laughs> I've had some of you say before, hey, now I'm gonna be going through Texas to go visit. Uh, how, how long am I gonna have to go through that state? I'm saying, you better get a couple of hotel rooms, depending on how many hours you like to to drive across the state. It's amazing that the the way that fulfilled prophecy backs up the authority of Scripture. D, a, a fourth truth of God's vision here, is simply this. Rebellion and pride leaves an awful legacy. More information we learn about Antiochus Epiphanes in verse 24, he'll become very strong, but not by his own power. It's, it's, in other words, his pride, his rebellion, is behind, it, it, Satan himself is behind him. He'll cause astounding devastation, will succeed in whatever he does, and he will be destroyed. destroy the mighty men and holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. Do you feel like that's going on in our culture, is deceit is prospering? And he will, he will consider himself superior. Now, his legacy, Antiochus Epiphanes, and likely the Antichrist himself, is one where it's all about me. He considers himself, I'm superior. He considers himself to be superior. This type of legacy is one that is awful, one that we don't want to encourage, one that we don't want to emulate. But we see in verse 24, five, something incredible happens. He will cause deceit to prosper, but when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. In other words, he comes ultimately in the end times against Jesus himself, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. We read that Antiochus Epiphanes was, was fell dead of natural causes in the 2nd century B.C., We also know that the Antichrist, whom this is the prototype for, will be defeated by Christ himself in the Battle of Armageddon. And we know that what, what this means for us is E, under number two, that God himself has our back, that we don't have to take vengeance out on other people, that God can be trusted to right our wrongs, that God can be trusted to provide for us, that like Christ who in first peter chapter 2 verse 23 knew that the one who judges justly could be trusted and this morning yes there are some powerful facts from this prophecy that were fulfilled there's also some practical truths that we can apply to our everyday life that our suffering is monitored by god that god can be trusted to work for our good that god's word is true and that pride and rebellion are an awful legacy and that god himself has our back as we consider this powerful passage from god's word how will you respond to god this day let's take a moment and bow together and enter into a time of response as we wait before him living lord we humble ourselves before you today lord and we thank you that thousands of years ago you you spoke a word that relates to our life and days here in Central Florida. And we ask that you would draw people to your truth, Lord. Lord, we're thankful for your word that says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, there's some here today that are coming to terms with their rebellion against you, that they have not placed their faith in you, that they have gone their own way and that you died for their sin and you have rose again to give them victory. We like to pray that you would open up hearts and draw people to your truth today thank you, Father. We ask that you would make a name for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.